This is the Narrative Shift Podcast, where we talk about faith, justice, race, and everything in between. Hey, I'm Terrence Lester. And I'm Johnny Taylor. And uh, thanks for tuning in. You are listening to the 27th episode of Narrative Shift. I'm Johnny, and I'm here with Terrence. What's up, Terrence? What's up, man? 27 episodes. We can say we've been consistent. Yeah, I think so. And we're on a on a roll because this is like the second one yeah. in the past couple of weeks we've done. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really excited and uh, kind of sorrowful about today's episode. Uh, today we will uh, cover hostile architecture, um, yeah. which is really amazing um, and also sad at the same time. I remember giving a uh, talk at Georgia's Georgia Tech. I was invited into uh, this uh, school of architecture, and I was asked to present on the subject of empathy uh, to all of these students who are majoring in uh, developing cities and uh, design, as it as it were, as it relates to uh, building buildings or designing buildings or structures. And I remember feeling really intimidated, uh, but also very empowered. And the reason why I felt a little intimidated is because I don't have a background, obviously, in architectural design, but I felt very empowered because I was going to have a chance to talk to a group of people that could literally change and reshape the way that we look at cities, uh, um, you know, uh, city planning and uh, structural development. And if you're listening to this, if you don't know what hostile architecture is, it's otherwise known as um, anti-homeless architecture. And it's a a form of architectural design uh, that prevents or impedes uh, people without an address from being in certain places. So uh, another way of looking at this is that when people are designing buildings and structures, uh, they are designing them in a way that excludes the existence of other people. And so we've seen uh, several examples of what hostile architecture looks like, whether it's um, a slanted bench uh, in a city where, you know, people don't want people sleeping on the benches. We've seen the the viral photos of spikes being placed in certain areas that will uh, deter people from sleeping uh, underneath or beside buildings. Um, we've even seen uh, like these benches, these park benches with, you know, very shortened bars where you can't stretch out or lay on a bench. And one, one of my, um, I guess one of the most, uh, Johnny, um, one of the most touching stories of hostile architecture is how a city in, in Florida uh, actually played on a loudspeaker in a public park uh, the Baby Shark song. song. And this, uh, this was a, a tactic used in the form of music, right, uh, to deter people from sleeping because who can sleep if loud music is blaring? And, and so hostile architecture can be 
all of these different ways to, to exclude people. And um, we've seen this time and time again, man. What, what do you what do you have to say about it? Yeah. So we ourselves have seen a few instances in Atlanta of hostile architecture um, right after the pandemic. Yeah. Um, really started to scale up and uh, become a national concern and everything was shutting down. Uh, not too far into that, we saw saw a, a local park um, put up barricades, mm. a park where people experiencing homelessness tended to congregate. And then um, a few months later, the like you said, played a loud tone over some speakers mm. to deter people from uh, sleeping in that area. And then maybe a month later, they actually erected these big um, fences around it, totally closed it off. Yeah. And uh, the... How did you feel in that moment? Because we we were out there, man, and we were... We were actually set up in that park uh, with our campaign, Love Sinks In, uh, providing hand-washing for community members that didn't have access to running water. And I know on several occasions... Uh, you would go down and sanitize and maintain the the sinks uh, for people to have that access um, to this vital resource. And so seeing that, going there one day, walk us through like your your emotions, what you felt like when you realized that this park was closed down and closed off a public park, which is ironic because the name is Hurt Park (laughs) and hurt people are sometimes there. Yeah, um, it's closed. Yeah, so I was going to that park almost every day during the warmer months to fill up our hand-washing sinks. We had five sinks in that location, so they the needed to be re- refilled, like, every single day. Mm. And so throughout that, like, you know, I probably went there 60 times. Wow. Um, and, you know, I built relationships with people experiencing homelessness in that area. And then one day, like without warning, I show up and there are barricades like all around the all around the park. There's police tape like. Hmm. So that was kind of like, I guess, a shock. You know, like I said, there's no warning. And it just said it was closed for cleaning. And like I'm going around like asking people like what happened and they don't really know. Like, yeah, different opinions going around. Um, we actually shared this on our, our social media and. Many students from the school that owns the park uh, started to speak out, and I think it made a couple of blogs. Um, but people were really not happy with uh, displacing people um, experiencing homelessness because many people actually use this this place as a respite, as a sanctuary, if we, if you will, as a place to commune. Um, even if it's at a distance uh, because of COVID-19, also as a as a commuter greeting space. Right. Um, back when COVID was like shutting down everything. I remember times we would go out there and we would have conversations with individuals um, and they would say, you know, I feel isolated even more. Uh, because I'm not able to connect with a relationship that I've built a commuter because commuters were being quarantined and uh, sheltering in place at that time. I mean, but I remember when you told me that I was floored. Yeah. I mean, it came out of nowhere. I was floored. Like, and the park is still closed. It's still closed. We actually went by there today and 
Um, it looks like they're doing some construction, some revamping in the area. Yeah. Uh, but one major thing, one like negative thing about this is, you know, you would see anywhere from 100 to 300 people there on the weekends to receive resources. It was one of those areas where mm. uh, people could congregate and uh, receive food they need and blankets, sleeping bags, tents, etc. cetera. Uh, these are life-sustaining items that they need. And this is a spot where uh, people like us or other organizations, other individuals, groups can go and, and they know that there are people in need here. Um, and now, like today, for instance, we drove around for probably an hour uh, yeah. looking for people. And it's, it's getting more and more difficult to um, find areas where people have congregated, uh, where you can have, um, I guess more impact in a certain area. Now it's more dispersed. Yeah. Uh, you're finding more and more single, uh, single individuals who are experiencing homelessness in areas. And, um, which is, it's it too is hard, right? Because yeah. you build relationships with individuals. Like I know, uh, one person that, you're working closely with a gentleman by the name of Kerry um, <clears throat> was living underneath a bridge where more hostile architecture was placed. And could you talk a little bit about what happened with that? Yeah. So um, a bridge uh, on Pryor Street, uh, we've been working under that bridge. Uh, I mean, really since the organization started, but yeah. uh, we were there almost probably every other day um, mm. since April, May. Yeah. Uh, working with people. And I, uh, you know, I had a COVID back at the end of October. So I was quarantined. Yeah. And then I came back out there uh, with, a, with a couple of buddies from out of town uh, to show them, you know, show them around. Yeah. And I got there and like, there are these huge boulders all over the streets and they had totally cleared everybody out. And I remember uh, probably three, maybe a month before that, like they had gone through and cleared out a bunch of tents, a bunch of people, uh, cleaned up the trash. But, you yeah. know, a week later, everybody was kind of back and it looked about the same. But then they came through and just totally, I mean, literally bulldozed it and put boulders. Yeah, and, and the boulder story is is not a unique story. I mean, there have been neighborhoods and uh, places all around the United States where people have paid thousands, tens of thousands of dollars uh, for boulders uh, uh, to put on sidewalks or to put beside buildings to deter people uh, from sleeping. And, um, you know, one thing about displacement, it's not just the you know, these people need to find somewhere else um, to sleep. You know how people say those types of, of words, othering, uh, you know, other human beings, right? Um, it's not just that simple. You know, when you displace somebody, someone could lose their identification card, their birth certificate, connection to community, uh, relationships with organizations that have been uh, you know, working intently to try to help people get off of the streets. I mean, so many things can be lost in just like being uprooted out of an area and, and being totally displaced. And, you know, there are mixed opinions about this, right? 
well, you know, some people say, well, they're breaking the law. You can't uh, sleep underneath a bridge or like they shouldn't be in this uh, area anyway. And my rebuttal to that is, you know, in August, on August 6, uh, 2015, the Department of Justice actually uh, made this public statement uh, saying that it's unconstitutional. Constitutional. Um, they make this statement saying that it's unconstitutional to punish uh, people experiencing homelessness uh, for practicing life-sustaining activities, whether it's sleep, sleeping in public places or uh, standing in certain areas. It's unconstitutional to take a person's right away uh, to sleep. And this was actually a filing in response to um, a, a, a court case out in Idaho, right, um, where many uh, individuals who were experiencing homelessness were actually convicted under uh, Boise ordinances uh, that criminalized sleeping or camping in public. And so this case was uh, pretty huge. It took about 10 years uh, to decriminalize that um, in the federal courts out in uh, Boise, Idaho, but it was overturned. And the Department of Justice literally said that sleeping is a life sustaining activity. It must occur at some time and in some place. If a person literally has nowhere to go, then enforcement of the anti-camping ordinance against uh, uh, that person criminalizes their very existence. And so, um, you know, when people think about displacement, it's not just, you know, oh, they need to find somewhere else safe. You know, 70 percent of people experiencing homelessness do not know where it's safe to sleep at night. Yeah. And one problem we've seen in Atlanta specifically is there are fewer and fewer safe spaces for people who are experiencing homelessness to mm. go. And really, I mean, living on the streets, there's nowhere that is safe, yeah. per se, uh, but there are areas that can be safer than others. Uh, typically, the places where you can congregate and find community, there's, you know, a little bit of safety in that. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, we've seen uh, shelters shut down. Um, mm. We've seen uh, parking lots um, coned off and blocked off, barricaded. Uh, and like we've said, we've seen places like under that bridge uh, where there literally boulders have been placed to keep people out. And uh, one, one more issue like I have with this is it's not, so there are some people who were able to get off the streets and into a uh, like housing programs, hotel sure. programs. Yeah. And some issues I have with that are, for instance, you mentioned Carrie uh, come to find out, a month later that he got into a 90 day hotel program. But at the same time, we had been working with him for three months. Uh, we had reconnected him with family. Yeah. Um, we were opening a bank account literally that week. Uh, like I came down to pick him up for an appointment to open up a bank account and he wasn't there mm. because he had been uh, moved out. And he was going to be able to collect Social Security and be able to secure uh, housing on his own from yeah. that. and Sustainable housing. Yeah, sustainable housing that is, like he, that is coming from his own um, you know, income. And you know, there's dignity in that. But 
my point is that isn't something that, you know, that I would have known. It took me a month to figure that, that stuff out. Right. And now like, I don't know at what spot he started back at. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, yeah. You know, there's no, uh, I guess continuity between, um, these agencies. Like it would be great if I would be able to contact whoever, yeah. Um, it's his caseworker if he right. has one and, you know, let him know like, right. Hey, this is where we left off. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like the, this like housing thing isn't one size fits all. For right. instance, we had uh, we have a friend, Willie, who used to stay under that bridge. Uh, we ran into him earlier in the week and he told me that he had gone to that specific hotel and that they were full. Um, but one other issue he brought up is he had recently been hit by a car and drug for a while. Um, so he has, you know, pretty much the whole, uh, right side of his body had to be replaced. So he's got, you know, metal rods in his leg and he has Mm. to go to Grady every single day to, uh, receive physical therapy. Yeah. And, uh, from that specific hotel where they're housing people, to Grady is a five-hour walk for him. Wow! Uh, because of his disability, right? And you know it's uh, it's thirty degrees. Yeah. Outside, even we've seen temperatures drop as low as twenty-five degrees. Yeah. Uh, that's painful when you have half of your body replaced with metal. Yeah. Um, not to mention it's just a five-hour walk. That mm. means there are ten waking hours of his day walking from housing. To a necessary medical treatment back to housing. That's that's not sustainable. Not it's by, not by nobody, man. I mean, not. even if you, you know, if you have access and resources, uh, like nobody would want to make a ten-hour walk. Nobody would, especially not in this uh, weather condition. Yeah, and you know, uh, there are pros to being in a hotel program like this. Like it yeah. gets people off the streets. It gets them in a, a pathway to some more sustainable housing. But like I said, it's not one size fits all. And due to this bridge being cleared out and uh, boulders here, like there aren't uh, as many safe options for someone like Willie. Right. Uh, that bridge is only about a two hour walk. Um, so it's still far, but it's not as bad. Right. Uh, but now he lacks community. Um, around him, transportation. And I know uh, I've been told by a few people who have been left behind in that area that people don't come by with food as much anymore because there aren't as many people there. And to bring up another point, like there, I know a few people out there with severe mental illnesses who aren't um, being included in this uh, for whatever reason. Which is a a totally different... um, challenge yeah and you know we started off talking about like hostile architecture and so we have to really unpack why does hostile architecture even exist and we have to connect that to the criminal view of the experience of homelessness that if you are poor or without an address that somehow you are a criminal or you lack moral uh, morality, or you have character flaws, or you're lazy or uneducated. 
I mean, the laundry list of all of these negative connotations, right? And so um, the criminalization of homelessness actually emerged out of the 70s uh, underneath an administration that had political rhetoric for uh, the impoverished, right? And so uh, I want to read uh, a quote that the director of the Office for Access to Justice, Lisa Foster, says. She says, no one wants to sleep on sidewalks or in parks, particularly not our veterans or young people or people with mental illness. She says, but the answer is not to criminalize people experiencing homelessness. Instead, we need to work with our local government partners to provide the services people need, including legal services, uh, to obtain permanent and stable housing. What do you think about that, man? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, like this hostile architecture is almost like trying to erase a problem. Um, but in reality, what it does is it totally erases people people's humanity. Mm. Um, Say that again. For the audience. Yeah. Hostile architecture, I feel, is aimed to kind of erase a problem, like make homeless the appearance of homelessness go away. Yeah. But really, it, it erases the humanity of people experiencing homelessness in most cases. Hmm. And I mean, I, I have a huge issue with even the idea of trying to make things look better than, than it really is in reality. I have an issue with... Hmm. Um, you know, trying to make things appear more manageable. Yeah. Because when you think about it, there are always areas that could appear uh, better, that that could look more affluent. But, like, I mean, how would you feel if somebody came through with a bulldozer in your neighborhood uh, because they wanted to put bigger and nicer houses? Right. It's kind of, it's the same concept. Uh, like, it, it, it would, you know, yeah, it would man. strip you of your, your humanity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's literally <laughs> a design to exclude the existence of people who are considered the have-nots, right? Um, which is all sorts of you know, types of, uh, there, there's inhumanity in, in that, man. Um, it's dehumanization, man. It's, it's a lack of um, seeing ourselves as being a part of a much larger social fabric, uh, the social fabric of humanity that um, what King was alluding to, that we are a global village, right? Um, that we're all interconnected. Um, but I love something that uh, John Ritten says, or Ritter says, he's a architectural historian and a professor at the uh, university in New York. And he says, we're building barriers and walls around apartment buildings and public spaces to keep out the diversity of people and uses that comprom comprise urban life. We're literally barricading and blocking ourselves off from what he's I'm, I'm, I'm guessing he's saying from the whole community yeah like making smaller pockets within the context of the whole community yeah and, and what that does is it, it blocks certain members from that larger community hmm. which we all know that um, proximity is huge yeah 
within moving up, not only, um, uh, you know, social status, but financial um, into different financial classes. Proximity is huge. Uh, is everything. Yeah. I mean, there's a, you'll hear often uh, a quote by different, you know, financial advisors and uh, life coaches that you, um, your income will reflect the f- five people you're closest to. Um, mm. Mm. Wow. That y- y- and like when we that begin, commun- community yeah. itself is a privilege. Yeah, and you when you begin to isolate certain members of community, you you isolate opportunity for them to get out of those situations. Wow. Uh, I know personally, I, I've never had a job that I did not get through a relationship, a, a relationship through yeah. community. Um, every single, you know, job I've ever had has been through connecting with someone in a position of power, mm. building a relationship, and then uh, moving in and uh, acquiring employment. Yeah, man. Proximity. Such a huge term uh, and such a powerful um, answer to what is displacing people all across the nation in the form of hostile architecture. Yeah. That we distance, the distance itself actually becomes the breeding ground for more inequity. It does. It, it cuts off um, social capital mm. from cross-class uh, cross, um, cross class social capital. But also, when we go back to talking about safe spaces for people experiencing homelessness, it, it also... Um, reduces the social capital that they have within their own communities. Uh, For the first time since the the 08 housing market crash, we've seen homelessness increase. Uh, We started seeing that increase in 2016, and I think those numbers have stayed the the same. They've kind of trended upward, and I'm sure... Well, you know, researchers are saying now, because of COVID-19, that homelessness will increase by 41% in 2021. Right. From the residue of what we've experienced this year. Yeah, and when we think about that kind of increase and having less safe spaces, and we have... Shortage in beds, too. Yeah, we have... And we have new people experiencing homelessness entering into these... Uh, into a lack of community uh, where they're completely on their own. I know there are people experiencing homelessness who act as guides for others who are mm. entering into this problem. Yeah. And now the ability for that is severely um, limited in this climate of hostile architecture yeah. and removing people from their, from communities and where people are congregating. Yeah. Um, it just cuts access all around. Yeah. Is what it does. Man, it cuts access. Yeah. And there's no, to my knowledge, no system in place that is constantly reaching out to people, new people experiencing homelessness throughout the city, getting them into these housing programs. Right. And I mean, there are some organizations like we, we make posts uh, on our social media pages not to attack, but also, but to firmly educate. Um, people about the realities um, and we use education as a tool to build empathy right and there are some organizations that say you know you know they were under bridges and everybody got into a program where well we all know that's not true right right um, it, sometimes the program within itself uh, doesn't like you said earlier have enough beds and 
you know, it's uh, very selective of certain types of people. There are still a, a great number of people out there who need medication for, you know, mental health issues. Uh, there are people who have been excluded for whatever reason and weren't wasn't able to get into a program. I've talked to several people um, that haven't been able to get in, in, into a program. There, there have been people who have died and passed away uh, from hypothermia. Uh, and they weren't in a, pro, in, in a program. And so I think as we talk about this, uh, this subject, we need to be sensitive. Um, we need to listen. You know, if you're a politician or not, or a community leader or not, or someone who is just like uber um, into politics and uh, or not, or if you're just a believer, uh, a person of faith or not, um, I think our role in this right now is to listen, um, to be proximate, but to also discern what tangible solutions that we can we can have right now. Yeah. Um, and I understand, you know, people often ask, do you, do you want people to stay under bridges? No. Right. Nobody does, right? Of course not. Um, but to displace somebody uh, who is already in transition uh, from a, a, a place that is familiar. Just imagine me walking into your house. Um, everybody hates moving, right? <laughs> it's a tedious task, right? But just think if I walked in your house and, like, just took all your stuff or uprooted you and like sent you on your way without a next step. What would that do? Yeah, that would be demoralizing. It would be destabilizing. Um, it would just, it wouldn't be a good experience in any, in any way. And I, I mean, like you said, nobody wants to be living under a bridge and nobody wants anyone to be living under a bridge. Like right. we can all agree that that is not the best. And, we want to move forward beyond that, but under that bridge is as of now a place of stability. Right. Um, and it's not, we don't want it permanent of course, but we don't want to further destabilize the lives of people who have already gone through so much chaos and instability so far. Right. So in closing, man, um, what would you leave our listeners with? For me, I, w- I would just say, uh, I think we desperately need to rethink the narrative surrounding uh, people experiencing homelessness. Because when we have criminalizing thoughts and ideas around people without an address, then we create um, laws and ordinances that further displaces and excludes them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you know, it comes down to we need safe spaces for people experiencing homelessness to build community until they can transition into their next stage of life. Yeah. Because, you know, homelessness is not an issue we're going to solve anytime soon. Right. And right now, building hostile architecture and limiting where people can stay and getting even if we get most of those people into programs, they're still stragglers who matter. Yeah, you know it's almost like uh, we're telling the lifeguard he can go home because there are only three people drowning, not you know a thousand. That's so a we're good. good. Yeah, 
you know, those people still matter. And like you said, we, we saw somebody pass away just this past week from hypothermia. Yeah. I mean, that person mattered. Yeah. Uh, someone like Willie who has to walk, would have to walk 10 hours a day if he had gotten into that program to his physical therapy, like he matters, like these individuals still matter. And if we can't solve the problem for the individuals, like it's not, I don't know if it's worth it. Yeah. The young man mattered. We saw last night. Yeah. He was outside with clothes that hardly fit. Yep. And he told us, we asked him where he stayed and he said, I don't know. I have to keep moving around. And because the wind was, it, it was cold. It was cold. And there's no, like we said, there's no safe spot anymore for somebody like him. Hmm. And there needs to be. And the fact that he doesn't even know where he's going to be, I mean, we can't, it makes it extremely difficult to help somebody Yeah. when we don't know where they're going to be. And, you know, we even tried to meet up with him this morning and couldn't find him. Uh, yeah. He could have had to have slept, you know, two or three miles away and not, not made it in time. We don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Or if we, he made it through the night. I- right. We just don't know. And unfortunately, it's because we've taken away stability um, yeah. and safety. Yeah. In trade for um, a false, sense, a false yeah, sense of security, a false sense of doing something. Right. Uh, yeah, that area looks nice now. There aren't tents. There aren't eyesores. There aren't um, you know piles of trash or people yelling at cars. Yeah. As they pass by. And maybe a lot of those people made it into programs, maybe but I know not, not everybody did, and not that's everybody. what matters. Yeah, uh, yeah, man, yeah. man. If you've uh, enjoyed uh, listening to any of what we've shared today, we ask that you share it, um, send it to a friend, tweet it, Facebook it, talk about it on Instagram. Um, we this is the twenty seventh. Right. 27th episode. Yeah, yeah man. Uh, we've been doing this. Go back and listen to some older episodes. And, uh, man, I think this was very spot on. It gave me a space to even talk about uh, some of the things that I felt towards hostile architecture. And I hope that uh, you learned something along the way. Yeah, I hope this was educational for you. And like you said, Terrence, like being able to talk this through it's definitely a different uh, medium than it would be writing something on social media. Like being able to hear a human voice explain this and to share stories of what we've seen, like I think it, uh, it might add different perspective yeah, um, and make people more compassionate and empathetic. But that being said, I think we're ready to wrap up. Uh, yeah, if man. you want to share where people can find you on social media, that yeah. Would be cool. Yeah, sure. So uh, you can look up the organization, lovebeyondwalls.org. Uh, our social media handles are at lovebeyondwalls. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We launched a, a museum uh, last year called Dignity Museum. Um, excited to get it back out there in uh, 2021. Um, we've had a couple partners reach out about it. You can follow that uh, at dignity museum same social handles and if you want to look me up just uh reach out to i'm terrence lesser that's i-m-t-e-r-e-n-c-e-l-e-s-t-e-r and uh you can find me on facebook instagram and twitter as well what about you john 
Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Johnny Taylor 95 That's J-O-H-N-N-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-9-5. And one thing I'd like to mention is you have a new book coming out spring 2021. Oh, yeah. Uh, with IVP Press. Yeah. Uh, or IVP. Um, and it's called When We Stand. Yeah. And I've actually read... Uh, a little over three-fourths of it so far. Oh, wow. Um, I think I have three chapters left. Oh, wow. And I would recommend it to everybody listening to this podcast. I think the topic of the book, you know, standing together and um, pursuing, you know, justice and doing good as a community really is applicable to uh, a topic like hostile architecture. Mm. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. Yeah, Um just the heart behind it is, you know, wanting to see people come together and solve issues that, you know, we complain, uh, complain about divided, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, together is, is how we, you know, attack issues. And it's, it's about the amalgamation and the coming together of all different types of people, you know, from different backgrounds and different gifts and skill sets and all of that, man. And, my hope is that it inspires some, you know, person to organize or to utilize their gift and not feel paralyzed by the weight of uh, injustice in this world. Because God needs you. Yeah. God needs right. all of us. Um, and God will and can use all of us to accomplish his uh, good works. And yeah. So, yeah, man. So thank you for shouting that out. Thank yeah, you for reading. For sure. bro. Yeah. And, you know, like issues like hostile architecture and even the larger narrative of homelessness is going to take you know communities of people who care different voices different perspectives yeah uh different problem solvers are all going to be needed and involved in these issues so once again i'd recommend the book yeah it comes out uh may 18th uh 2021 and uh yeah it's been a good podcast man we are in a local coffee shop so if you hear anything in the background um, that's the aesthetic of, of being out um, and being on the go with the podcast. Yep. Well, again, thank you for listening. If you listen this far and we will see you next time.